The reading is from Ezekiel chapter 28 and can be found on page 858 of the Bibles in front of you. Ezekiel chapter 28. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In the pride of your heart, you say, I am God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas. But you are a man and not a God, though you think you're as wise as a God. Are you wiser than Daniel? Is no secret hidden from you? By your wisdom and understanding, you have gained wealth for yourself and amassed gold and silver in your treasuries. By your great skill in trading, you have increased your wealth, and because of your wealth, your heart has grown proud. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Because you think you are wise, as wise as a god, I'm going to bring foreigners against you, the most ruthless of nations. They will draw their swords against your beauty and wisdom and pierce your shining splendor. They will bring you down to the pit and you will die a violent death in the heart of the seas. Will you then say, I'm a god, in the presence of those who kill you? You will be but a man, not a god, in the hands of those who slay you. You will die the death of the uncircumcised at the hands of foreigners. I have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, This is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz and emerald, chrysolite, onyx and jasper, sapphire, turquoise and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created, till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence, and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God, and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. By your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuaries. So I made a fire come out from you, and it consumed you. And I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who were watching. All the nations who knew you are appalled at you. You have come to a horrible end and will be no more. This is the word of the Lord. Last Sunday, it was Andrew 
uh, his task to clarify what the Bible says about the fact and nature of sin. And this week it's my brief to draw attention to the fact that sin brings consequences into our lives and their consequences that are both personal and, and social. They affect us as individuals and they affect us as a community and a society. And I hope to draw something of that out from this passage in Ezekiel. But first, let's pray. Father, such is the grip of sin on our lives and of lives of everyone around us, people that you care about, people that you love, people that you, through the gospel, the good news of the cross, seek to bring back into relationship with you. But such is the depth of this sin that we rarely see its implications. We just pray that as we read this passage of Scripture and many, many others like it, we may understand the, the tragedy, the calamity that we've got ourselves into and truly look to you for rescue. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ezekiel 28, and this passage is part of a section that begins with chapter 26, carries through the same theme in chapter 27, and in fact concludes with the passage we'll be looking at this evening, chapter 28, verses 1 to 19. And Ezekiel, it is writing about a hugely, but hugely successful trading city. And the king of that city, a man called Ethbiel II, he had been hugely instrumental too in bringing about Tyre's economic domination of the whole eastern Mediterranean region. For those who know a bit about the history, you'll recognize that we're talking about the ancient Phoenician people who dwelt in Tyre itself. The city itself was on an island off the mainland, not far off, but also spread to the coastal area on the mainland itself. And that gave it two quite extraordinary harbors where the magnificent ships of the Phoenicians, and they were brilliantly built, if you want to read more of, of what they might have looked like, look later on at chapter 27, for example, where the prophet develops the theme of Tyre around the very uh, beautiful and magnificent ships that they built. Well, they were at anchor in the harbour on either side of this island and its mainland part of the city. And so successful were they at the trading that they were a rival to the Roman Empire. And um, the city of Carthage, for example, 
which is or was on the coast of modern-day Tunisia, was the single greatest rival to the rise of Rome that existed at the time. And eventually, Carthage itself was brought into line by the sheer military might of the Roman Empire. If you were to look at it, the city of Tyre, and it's a quite fascinating business going through all the different photos that you can get and the reconstructions that are given. Um, if you look up the word tire, it won't just give you about where you can get your four tires on the car replaced, but something about this city. And there, there is photo after photo of the site today and of what it might have looked like across the ages. And there's no doubt that it was a magnificent and beautiful city. And it's sited, as you probably realised, off the coast of modern-day Lebanon. It was only about 100 miles or so to the north of the city of Jerusalem. But over the centuries, its very wealth and its strategic location was to bring it into great difficulty and trouble. If you look at chapter 26, verse 3, <clears throat> for example, uh, the sovereign Lord, God, is against the city of Tyre. And Ezekiel, speaking prophetically, says, I will bring many nations against you, like the sea casting up its waves. They will destroy the walls of Tyre. Now, in Ezekiel's day, it would be Babylon and specifically King Nebuchadnezzar, fresh from his overthrow of Jerusalem, who would attack and besiege the city of Tyre. And that siege went on for about 13 years, and um, the records have it that the Babylonian armies besieging the city got as weary and tired of their role as did the inhabitants of the city. And it ended in a kind of stalemate where both the Phoenicians and the Babylonians came to an agreement. But it was eventually conquered um, <clears throat> by none other than Alexander the Great in 332 BC. And some of you will know that he did it by building an extraordinary causeway that stretched out from the mainland to the island. And contemporary uh, photos of the site, you can actually see under the water the remains of that causeway. And that was in itself a massive undertaking as he extended his imperial might. Now, I stress all this because sometimes we approach the Bible and the Old Testament as if it's somewhere on the edge of history. It isn't. This was at the heart of what nowadays we might call Middle Eastern European history. It had huge ramifications, what was going on and what Ezekiel was writing about. It's real history. And it was amazing economic success that the Phoenicians enjoyed 
both the king and the citizens lived good lives by any standard. But with it went an arrogance and opportunist approach to life which led to the downfall of both the king and his people. In their pride, both the king and this city-state had come to believe that it was all due exclusively to their exceptional trading skills and their economic astuteness. Listen again to the first part of chapter 28, the passage we're looking at divides into verses 1 to 10 and then 11 to 19. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the sovereign Lord says, in the pride of your hearts you have said, I am a God, I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas, but you are a man and not a God. Though you think you are wise as a God, are you wiser than Daniel? Is no secret hidden from you? By your wisdom and understanding, you have gained wealth for yourself and amassed gold and silver in your treasuries. By your great skill in trading, you have increased your wealth. And because of your wealth, your heart has grown proud. This is, therefore, what the Sovereign Lord says. Because you think you are wise, as wise as a god, I'm going to bring foreigners against you, the most ruthless of nations. They will draw their swords against your beauty and wisdom and pierce your shining splendor. They will bring you down to the pit and you will die a violent death in the heart of the seas. Will you then say, I am a God, in the presence of those who kill you, you will be but a man, not a God, in the hands of those who slay you. You will die the death of the uncircumcised at the hands of foreigners. If you want to read more and think more of the significance of all this and its contemporary application, a little bit I'll touch on now, but by far the best book to read, and I think it's one of the greatest commentaries in the series, is Chris Wright's commentary, The Message of Ezekiel, in the uh, series we've got on the bookstall outside. He's quite outstanding in the way he develops these themes. My observations thus far would be this. Sin brings consequences. Okay, we recognise that. But what actual shape do they take? How do they affect us? Well, the first thing we see from these chapters is that sin brings consequences that are both personal, social and economic. And from the highest to the lowest we all suffer those consequences. It's 
understandable that chapter 28 should focus on the king of Tyre. He represented all that the city stood for. But every citizen, every person living in and around that magnificent city-state was part of the problem. Because sin brings consequences that affect us all. The second observation I'd make from what we've seen thus far is this. Sin expressed in our pride means that we cease to believe that we're accountable to God. That's the heart of the matter. That's why so many people around us today believe they can get by depending on their own resources. We're too proud in what we think we can say and do when the Bible tells us again and again and again that you and I are accountable to our creator, sovereign, loving God. And we so easily forget that. I think it's important to note as we look at chapter 28 of Ezekiel that King Ethbaal II is not condemned because he was successful. His exceptional trading skills are recognized by the prophet who speaks in the name of God. Where did those skills come from? Well, they were God-given. And his application of brilliant engineering skills, they clearly weren't his alone. He had shipbuilders working in that city-state whose knowledge of technology and engineering was quite exceptional. And none of these things stand condemned. Neither his financial savviness, his reading of the markets, which led to Tyre being the dominant economic power in the whole of the Eastern Mediterranean, that's not condemned as such. Because all these things come from God. And it should be obvious that we do our utmost in whatever gifts and talents and opportunities that God gives us to do it successfully. So he's not being condemned because he was successful. He was condemned because he had failed to glorify God in the way that he and his people used their God-given skills and opportunities. They thought it was all the product of their own knowledge and understanding and wisdom. Now, like many of you, uh, I've been reading stuff over the last few weeks, but particularly since last Sunday when Clive challenged us with that little inset in the notices leaflet about how to vote in the European referendum. And uh, 
I, I've found out all sorts of things I was not aware of. I don't intend to go down that road this evening. But I do want to mention one person that some of you may know of. I hadn't before, except as a name. An American economist and social theorist called Jeremy Rifkin. He's quite outstandingly able in the job, or it should be jobs, that he does. He's been an advisor, for example, to the past three presidents of the European Commission and their leadership teams. He's also, I discover, highly respected by China's current leadership, where he also exercises a quite amazing influence. This is a North American economist and social critic, social theorist. And you can read all about him in the usual sites. And in one of his books called Algin, A New Word, A New World, and published some years ago now, I want to quote from what he wrote. This is one of the most influential men in the contemporary world scene when it comes to deciding how people should behave. And he writes these words. We no longer feel ourselves to be guests in someone else's home and therefore obliged to make our behaviour conform with a set of pre-existing cosmic rules. It is our creation now. We make the rules. We establish the parameters of reality. We create the world. And because we do, we no longer feel beholden to outside forces. We no longer have to justify our behaviour. For we are now the architects of the universe. And then listen to this. We are responsible to nothing outside ourselves. For we are the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. And you almost imagine he's going to finish with Amen. He doesn't. He stops at that point. But the parody, the mocking of our accountability of God to God through the words of this man of enormous influence is both shocking and tragic. Jeremy Rifkin. You see, then and now, in the days of King Ethbile II and in our contemporary Western society and almost worldwide, the tragic consequence of our sin as the, is that we do indeed put ourselves in the place that only God can occupy. I mentioned Chris Wright, the commentator, and he expresses something of the challenge we face very well in one of his comments about not just Tyre but other great cities of that era. 
And he says this, this is a perspective of biblical faith that we need to reaffirm in our modern world. It's easily open to misrepresentation. To say that God is sovereign and is sovereign over world history doesn't mean that he directly wills everything in the sense that that is exactly what God wanted to happen. (coughs) Human beings make their own plans and act out of the evil of their own hearts. And we know from Scripture that God is as grieved and angry as we are. More so, rather, at the depth and extent of human evil on the international stage. Nor does it amount to sheer fatalism, as though all events were manipulated by the strings of a divine puppeteer. The Bible gives full scope to the reality of human freedom and responsibility. People and nations plan what they plan and do what they do and will one day give account to God for the exercise of that freedom. Yet behind and above all that, the Bible unquestionably affirms that there is a mysterious freedom and sovereignty of the creator of the universe at work. His purposes will not ultimately be defeated. And even the evil that people do can be turned to good ends by his sovereign power. In a more obviously Christian sense and with particular relevance to the way we live out our lives personally. C.S. Lewis writes these words, and they're in his book, Mere Christianity, and he's writing about pride. Pride has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Other vices may sometimes bring people together. You may find good fellowships, fellowship and jokes and friendliness among drunken people or unchaste people. But pride always means enmity. It is enmity, and not only enmity between man and man, but enmity with God. In God you come up against something which in every respect is immeasurably superior to yourself. And then he adds this, unless you know God as that, you do not know him, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and down on people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. That's C.S. Lewis. And as often is the case, he's spot on. So look with me, me, if you will, to the latter part of that passage where the prophet further underlines that what really matters is to know God in every experience of life. And notice how somehow the shift is different. 
and ask yourself the question, is he just speaking here about the king of Tyre, or is there another dimension coming in? Verse 11, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz and emerald, crystallite, onyx and jasper, jasper, sapphire, turquoise and beryl. Your settings and mountings, mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the days you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth I made a spectacle of you before kings. By your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuaries. So I made a fire come out from you and it consumed you. And I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who were watching. All the nations who knew you are appalled at you. You have come to a horrible end and will be no more. It's just a little bit confusing. Who is he talking about? Well, what Ezekiel is doing is very deliberately taking us back to Genesis and giving us a description of Adam, God's ruler in the Garden of Eden. And these verses from chapter 28, verse 11 to verse 19 are deliberately linked by the prophet with Genesis chapters 2 and 3. And the point he's making is this. In describing the king of Tyre and what's happening, he's also describing Adam and indeed all of us as children of Adam. There was a time, Ezekiel is reminding us, when a man was truly king and was indeed the pinnacle of God's creation. He was made to live by God consciously in his presence and to reflect in every part of his life the glory of God as God's image bearer. You see, Ezekiel's purpose is to make us all aware 
of the heights from which we have fallen. The tragedy of the king of Tyre, which is also our own personal tragedy, is in fact the greatest tragedy possible. We have exalted ourselves in place of exalting God. And if I can put it like this, all of heaven weeps for us. I think this all has tremendous implications for the situation we face today. How do we think about Europe? How do we view our place in the world? How do we deal with the, with the evil and the selfishness in our own hearts, in our own lives, in our own thinking, in the way we do things? If you want to read more on that, well, uh, speak to me or to Clive afterwards and we'll point you in different directions. But do you see how grave the situation is? As I walked around on Friday, I had a meeting <coughs> in London, in, the St. Helen, in St. Helens Bishopsgate, in fact. And you can't be in that area of the city without being aware of its grandeur. And even as I came out of the offices of St. Helens, there were a group of tourists there from the States wanting to look in the church. And as they stood there, they were looking round at all the magnificent buildings of the city. And I thought of Ezekiel, and I thought of the questions that God would ask of us today. Next week, we look at the way out that God offers us through the death of Jesus. But for now, as I finish, I want to read a few verses from the New Testament, and I want to remind us that Jesus, as the King of Kings, through the deep tragedy and yet the wonder of the cross, came to reverse the tragedy of the King of Tyre, which is also our tragedy, so that we might once again live God-centered lives. Listen to Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 to 11. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every 
tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Verse 9 again. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. And Ezekiel's message to us this evening is precisely that. It is God who does the exalting, not us. Let's pray. Father, one of the reasons we take so long to come to our senses and to look to what you've done for us through the death of Jesus on the cross is that in our pride we think we're okay. We think we can manage. And we just don't grasp the extent to which sin has brought such deep and lasting consciousness, such deep and lasting problems to our very nature, our thinking, our feeling. We don't see the seriousness of it all. And we just pray that you will wake us up to what the scriptures teach us about the nature of sin and its consequences. Help us to see in our own lives that what matters is that we do use the gifts and talents and opportunities that we have, not just for our own ends, but for the good of others, and always in order to bring glory to you. So bring us to our senses and help us to be Christian people who make a difference because we realize it's not we who should be exalting ourselves, but it's you, our Father, who exalts as you choose, when and where. And we thank you in all of that for the example of Jesus. Amen.